We are uh, in Psalm 114 tonight. Psalm 114. Do anyone does anyone remember what section or what the name of this section from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118? What it was called? The Hallel. That's close enough. That's good. And uh, what is why, why, why is it called the Hillel? Okay, it means praise ye the Lord. In Hebrew is hallelujah. That's where our word hallelujah comes from. Um, and by the way, anytime you have a yah on the end, um, you can pretty much bet that it is a contraction of Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, trying to think. If you see an E-L... That's short for Elohim. So Samuel, Joel. Anytime you see a ah, yah sound, it's probably Jehovah. Uh, for instance, Micah means who is like the Lord, who is like Jehovah. So anytime you see those prefixes or suffixes, you'll recognize what's going on there. Uh, Psalm 114. This is a short one again, so uh, we shouldn't. Be uh, take too long for us to work our way through here. Psalm 114. Let's read it together and then we'll discuss it. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. The Jordan was driven back. The mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. What aileth thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest? Thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back. Ye mountains, that ye skipped like rams, and ye little hills like lambs. Tremble, thou earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into standing water, the flint into a fountain of waters. All right. Do we need to read it again? Y'all got it? All right, let's go on. <laughs> Hebrew is known for its parallelisms. That is, you say something, and then you turn around and you say it again. You say it in just a little bit different way, but oftentimes the second way you say it is synonymous with the first, and that's how their poetry works to a large degree. You'll see these parallelisms here, notice in verse 1, when Israel went out of Egypt, okay, here's another way of saying the same thing, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. See the parallelism? Uh, why would Israel and Jacob be parallel to one another? It's a, well, not even the same family, same guy. Jacob's name after he wrestled with the angel, was changed to Israel. So it's the same person. And uh, we call them the children of Israel or the children of Jacob, either way. So notice those two things are synonymous to say that, they went, that Israel went out and the house of Jacob went out. Or notice they went out of Egypt. The parallel statement is they left a people of a strange language, of a foreign tongue which, of course, is relating to Egypt once again. So notice the parallelism. 
That's very, very common in Hebrew poetry and in the Psalms themselves. In some ways, it's a great help because uh, in case we don't get it the first time, maybe we'll understand it the second time around. If I say the same thing and just use different words, uh, it helps us to understand. Now, there are times that it won't be quite the same thing said the second time, and there may be an elaboration on what was said the first time. But here, you're going to see that almost all of these things are parallel to one another. This psalm is, uh, we, I told you last week, not only is this known as the Hallel, but it's known as the Egyptian Hallel. Because as this psalm makes it clear what is in focus in this psalm in particular is the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And so that's why it has that term, the Egyptian Hallel. It is a celebration of God bringing out his people from bondage and bringing them into the land of Canaan. It is, as we saw in the last psalm, a celebration of God's might and goodness to Israel. I'm taking this, dividing it into two verse sections, four sections, verse 1 and 2, which we talk of just to give an overview of what we're talking about. Verse 3 and 4 is the phenomena connected with the Exodus. Then verse 5 and 6 is a question, a rhetorical question. And then verse 7 and 8 is the answer I don't guess it is a rhetorical question if it's got an answer. I had a lady in my first church used to answer all my rhetorical questions. From When I'd say something on Sunday morning from the pulpit, she would answer. I mean, things like, uh, you know, well, the, it didn't bother me in, unless she got the answer wrong. Now, that was a difficult thing. But anyway, rhetorical. I don't guess this is quite a rhetorical question because there is an answer given at the end. So let's let's look at it. Notice that we are being focused on the birth of the nation of Israel. Uh, This is important. Jacob and his family. Anybody remember how many there were that went down into Egypt? Seventy souls, it said. There's an example of a synecdoche. A synecdoche is where you use part of something to represent the whole. Like a rancher has a hundred head of cattle. Well, he's got more in their heads, you understand. Their heads are attached to the rest of the cow, but we use the part to represent the whole. So 70 souls went down to Egypt. More than their souls went, their bodies went, but basically it's like where there were 70 souls that perished on this ship that went down or something of that nature. It uses that expression. Um, they went into Egypt as a family, a lone family, a refugee family. They went there because of a famine, went there to get food. Joseph, of course, number two man in Egypt, uh, had been by God providentially put there to assist the family, to keep them alive. They left far more than a family. They left a mighty nation. Again, the numbers that we deal with in the numbering of the people and so forth, there were half a million uh, or more that were men Um, age 20 and up. So this was a huge group of people that departed the land of Israel. In that sense, Israel as a nation was born in Egypt. Uh, Egypt was the womb of the nation of Israel. God brought his people out as a nation 
and entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai that they were his people and he was their God. In that sense, it's like Egypt was a grave from which they have been now resurrected. They've been brought to life. We could, we could say it's like a birth and it's like a resurrection, depending on how you look at it. Well, we see a similar thing going on later in their history in the land of Babylon, and that is the focus of prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where Babylon is viewed as the grave of the nation of Israel because they had been taken away in captivity. The nation was in captivity. It was in bondage. really wasn't a nation. It wasn't self-governing anymore. And God bringing the nation back out of bondage, out of Babylonian captivity, was like a birth or a resurrection. And in fact, that terminology is used by Ezekiel when he talking about the dry bones. You all remember the vision of dry bones? And you know the song anyway, knee bone connected to the thigh bone. And that the, the nation has been dead, and as we would say in the South, plumb dead. Dirty, dusty dead. Decayed dead. They were absolutely without strength. Usually the Greek conception of death is that it's the weakest state of all. You have no strength to do something. You may have strength when you say you're... I'm, the reason I'm sort of running off on this is because we were talking about being dead in trespasses and sin just last Sunday. And the point is, is that they had plenty of strength to sin. They just didn't have any strength at all to deliver themselves out of that death. It was like a grave. The dead don't resurrect themselves. They must be resurrected. And so you see in that vision of dry bones, God sending Ezekiel, proclaiming the word of the Lord, and bringing a nation up from the dusty bones to life. And so it's like a rebirth of the nation of Israel, but it's a spiritual rebirth. Uh, we could say the same in Jesus talking to Nicodemus, in John 3, uses the language of birth. Just as nothing resurrects itself, so nothing births itself. Not that I know of, anyway. Did you birth yourself? You wouldn't use that language, that verbiage, if you could do it to yourself. You may reform yourself, you may turn over a new leaf, but you don't birth yourself. And notice Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This has to happen to you. Then in John 5, he switches back to the picture of resurrection that they that believe in me have passed from death to life. What do you call passing from death to life? That's resurrection. And the same principle going on. So I'm just showing you that these figures of thinking of Israel as being brought out of Egypt as a type, as an example of salvation. And, and you well know that over and over again, the idea of God redeemed His people out of Egypt out of bondage. The same language that's applied to us, that we've been redeemed from the bondage of sin. Or we could look later in their history at the Babylonian captivity, and God's going to do it again. It's like there's, just in case you didn't get this first time around, He's going to give it to you another look at the same thing. Bringing a people out of bondage from which they cannot deliver themselves. And of course, this has been the theme of our study in Isaiah is that he does it through raising up a king. 
that overcomes the one who has them in captivity and frees them. And that's, of course, a picture of what Christ does for us in saving us. So notice the importance of Egypt and the exodus to an Israelite. This is what birthed them as a nation. This, their existence goes back to that. You'll notice that in verse 2, and by the way, verse, verse 2 is a good example of why I don't like the NIV. Anybody got an NIV here? Apparently y'all don't like it either. Uh, well, anyway, the, the NIV reads exceedingly well. It's a, I mean, it's not entirely bad, please. It's just not my favorite translation for this reason. In the NIV, it's translated in verse 2, Judah was God's sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The word God nowhere appears in the Hebrew manuscript in the Masoretic text. Clearly, the his here, the pronoun his, both in the first phrase and the second phrase, is referring to God, clearly. But the word God's simply not there in the text. And so the NIV, as it often does, goes ahead and interprets the text. That's what I don't like about it. I'd rather do my own interpretation. Thank you very much. Just give me what the, the text says, and I'll interpret it. Uh, but and, and it's a correct interpretation. It's just I don't like the NIV interpreting these things for me. And that's just one example of many, many in their attempt to make this thing readable. Because notice that if you don't supply the word God here, as the NIV does, and if you've got an ESV or a New King James or King James, it doesn't. They're both His. We have no antecedent to His. You see that? Now, there is one theory is that these Hallel Psalms are always read as a unit. And so notice Psalm 113 ended with praise ye the Lord, hallelujah. And so the His in verse 2 of 114 would be very natural. You already know who you're talking about. You're talking about Jehovah. Well, that's certainly true. But it somewhat spoils the effect to go ahead and insert the word God here. Because if you leave that out, then you're sort of hanging in suspense. Notice what this is telling you is that Judah is somebody's sanctuary and Israel is somebody's dominion, or perhaps we would use the word kingdom, somebody's rule. And it's like a mystery where you work your way through it and then you find out the butler did it at the end. And in this case, you've spoiled the ending because we're going to get to verse 7 that will make it very clear who the His is that we have here in verse 2. But it spoils the suspense. Am I making myself clear? In other words, you don't want to ruin the ending here. But you are making it clear from the outset that something more is going on here than just a people leaving Egypt. That's the important part, that there's a His involved here. And that the land to which they go... You're going to see as we work our way through this psalm that the writer is, of course, inspired of God, but will bring the whole Exodus story, the beginning and the end, together as a piece. Notice we have in verse 1 the beginning of the Exodus, Israel leaving Egypt. In verse 2, we have the end of the Exodus, God taking the land as His kingdom, as His sanctuary and as His dominion. 
We'll see that all through this psalm, that you've got the beginning and the end. It's like the Exodus is being looked at as a complete whole, as a unit, as a finished work, if you will. And so what has happened in the Exodus, a people have been brought out from somewhere, but they've also been brought into somewhere. And the somewhere that they have been brought into is none other than a sanctuary. Now, what's a sanctuary? We say, let's go into this, don't take food into the sanctuary. We mean this building, right? That's our word, very common word for an auditorium. Auditorium would probably be a more fitting word. Think of the root of the word sanctuary. That's the idea. Holy. A sanctuary is a holy place. That's why this is more of an auditorium than a sanctuary. It is set apart in the same sense that your silverware is set apart. Uh, You've got holy silverware. In that, you know, when the preacher comes over, you break out the good stuff. You know, the rest of the time, you, if you're like us, with plastic spoons and forks, you know, and you throw away. Uh, but you get the good stuff out when company shows up, right? And it is set apart for a special use. That's the very rude idea of holiness, sanctified, saint, sanctification, is to be set apart to something, separated from something, to something. And so notice that what's going on here is the land in which they are entering is a land that God is taking for His holy place, for the place of His dwelling. That, of course, was the significance of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, is that this is God's sanctuary. And that word is used to express those rooms in the temple, the holy place, the Holy of Holies. It's a sanctuary. It's set apart for the presence of God. And so notice that it's, it's sort of like salvation has two sides to it. So did the Exodus. Our salvation involves being freed from something, rescued, delivered from something, but it also has the aspect of being delivered to something. That make sense? We, we tend to think in halves, but the complete picture is that we're being taken out of sin, and we're being placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son. The two halves of the thing. We're being taken from bondage and captivity, and we're being taken to glory. In Hebrews 2, He's the captain of our salvation, bringing many sons to glory. Where is He? He's in glory, and He is in the process of bringing many sons to glory. And so notice how all of that is... Very clear here in these first two verses. I better keep, I'm saying this is going to be nice and short, and I'm going to keep talking. We'll never get through. You'll also notice that this implies that behind the visible exodus of a people from Egypt, there was the invisible movement of God with them. Of course, it wasn't always invisible. There was that pillar of fire and the cloud. But remember that the main thing that's going on is that God is moving with His people through the wilderness. He is guiding them. He's shepherding them. Like a flock of sheep, He's taking them into 
this new land. So it's reminding us that there's more going on here than just what you can see with the naked eye. The real power behind all this is the power of God. Okay, so those are the first two verses. Now notice the phenomena in verses 3 and 4 that are uh, accompanying this exodus. Notice, first of all, the sea saw it and fled. What's that referring to? Okay, the parting of the Red Sea. Notice that as God takes His people out of Egypt, the sea flees. Very poetic language, but it pulls back to open a path away. And then the second thing here, the Jordan was driven back. What's that referring to? When they entered the promised land in Joshua chapter 3, you remember the priests take the Ark of the Covenant and when they step in the Jordan River, it stops flowing and they go across on dry ground. The priests stand there in the riverbed and wait for the people to get across and they put 12 stones to commemorate all of that. So notice, now notice again, it's like bookends to the Exodus. The parting of the Red Sea is the beginning of the Exodus. The parting of the Jordan is the end. And so notice how we have the same similar thing going on in verse 1 and 2. Now you see in one verse how both ends of the Exodus are sort of comprised and put together in, in one verse. So we have the sea being parted. We have the Jordan driven back. And then verse 4 is interesting. He said, The mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. Um, you can sort of see the difference here. A mountain compared to a little hill, is sort of like a ram compared to a little lamb, right? And so notice that the mountain skips, and by skips, hops, jumps, skips like a ram, the little hills like lambs. What's that talking about? In connection with the Exodus, when do we find mountain shaking? Mount Sinai. Remember the mountain quaked and Moses said, I exceedingly fear and tremble. Uh, the mountain was shaking with an earthquake and so forth. And so in a... And, and again, this is poetic terminology. It's not meant to be taken literally. It, the, the mountain didn't actually hop like a ram hops. But it's the idea that the mountain moved at the presence of God. And then notice the second phrase, the little hills skip like ram or like lambs i can recall when i was raising sheep back on the farm on a real cold winter day um, i would go down and the sheep had been put up in the barn and so it's sort of nice and cozy in there they got wool coats after all so they're not really cold and uh when they're all together it'd be about 50 sheep in one great big room it's, it's really pretty warm in there and when those little lambs, you open that door, and let's say a nice cold winter day, it's about 20 degrees, those lambs hit that cold air, they go to hopping and skipping. They'll sometimes just jump straight up in the air. Funniest thing you ever saw. It's just like they've been hit by adrenaline all of a sudden because it's that cold air that suddenly invigorates them, wakes them up, and gets them moving. And so the idea of little lambs skipping is a, is a very pleasant memory to me. Because I've seen that happen. But what do you suppose that's talking about here in relationship to the Exodus? Have any ideas? 
I've got some ideas. I don't know if I can prove them. The big mountain, like a ram hopping, pretty much, again, if we're following the same pattern through here, that we have something at the beginning of the Exodus and then something at the end. Remember the parting of the sea and then the parting of the river. In each case, we've got something at the beginning of the Ephesus and something at the end. Then the hopping like a ram, the big mountain shaking, would be Sinai. And that happened at the beginning of the Exodus. Uh, Y'all are familiar, I take it, that uh, the Jewish calendar, Passover, of course, commemorated the Passover meal in Egypt. Fifty days later was the Feast of Pentecost. That's why it's called Pentecost. Fifty days later, which, according to the Jews commemorated the arrival at Mount Sinai. So the arrival at Sinai was, according to them, 50 days, and that would be roughly, that would probably be correct. I think that's probably true. Uh, A short while. So it's at the very beginning of the wilderness journey that they come to Sinai. So the the ram hopping, the mountain hopping, would be the shaking of Sinai, that we have clear biblical evidence took place. The little hills, like lambs hopping, not quite so easy, but my assumption is that this is talking about something that happened at the end. Buddy, have any ideas? I, I can't prove my theory. Yes? That's one of them. Is that Jericho, the walls of Jericho, falling down. Uh, we In November, we saw the ruins of Jericho. And Jericho's walls were built out of mud bricks. We saw a structure that dated back about 10,000 years ago. An amazing, an amazing structure. One of the oldest structures ever found on earth is there at Jericho. And it's made out of this mud brick. And, of course, mud brick is not very strong, tends to crumble. And so we know that when they marched around seven times that last day and shouted, the walls fell down. Certainly that could have happened without any means whatsoever. But God, shall we say, normally works through means. And so the idea of shaking the earth would have a good explanation for how that happened. So James, I think that's a candidate for what's being referred to here. There's one other thing, and that's the dividing of the the stopping of the River Jordan. If you go back and read Joshua 3, you'll see that it wasn't like the Red Sea where the water is over here on both sides of them and and just a short distance away. But in this case, the stoppage of the water of Jordan took place at a town called Adam that was about 20 miles upstream from them. And so in other words, the Jordan stopped flowing not just right there where they stepped across, but it was stopped flowing all the way from some 20 miles at least to the north as it came down. And the most, shall we say, the easiest explanation for how that would have happened would have been a landslide that would have dammed up the Jordan. There is a narrow channel up there some 30 miles north of where they would have crossed. 
And in the year 1257, a Muslim historian uh, gives an account of an expedition to go rebuild a bridge across the Jordan River that had washed out at flood stage. And they got to the Jordan River, and it was dry. And what had happened, they had had a landslide up in this narrowing area of the Jordan River had blocked the flow of water. Now, of course, it's not going to block it forever. By the way, if you're ever in the mountains and you're by a stream and all of a sudden the stream quits flowing, get out of there. Because what's about to happen is something, a landslide has dammed it up temporarily and it's got a whole bunch of water now piled up behind it. And when it comes loose, it's all coming down through there. So be, be very wary. But that's exactly what happened in 1257, according to this Muslim historian. That's what I assume probably happened at the crossing of the Jordan River. You say, well, then that doesn't make it a miracle. Well, the miracle is that it happened right as the priest stepped in the water. The miracle at Jericho happened right as they shouted on that seventh time around. It's a miracle of timing, shall we say. But God often uses means to perform these types of work. So my, my guess is that that's what's going on. But regardless, notice what it's saying to us, that even inanimate nature recognizes something's going on here. Inanimate nature recognizes its creator. And we'll say more about that in just a minute. And then notice the questions in verse 5 and 6. What ails thee, O sea, that you flee? Uh, thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back. In other words, the question is asked, why are you doing that? How come you're moving? How come you've stopped flowing in the case of the Jordan? You, you mountains in verse 6. How is it, what is it that has caused you to jump like a ram? Or you little hills to hop around like little lambs? Now we don't have to stop too long on this, but you get the idea that obviously Rocks and hills and rivers don't talk back. But notice that the insinuation is, is that even the rocks, the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the sea, recognize their maker. They know who is, who is entering, who's coming into town, shall we say. Um, I was thinking in preparation for this about other places where the idea of rocks are mentioned. Um, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus says that God is able to raise up stones as children of Abraham which pretty much he has <laughs> that's us we're just old hard, hard pieces of rock um, at one point when he was coming into Jerusalem on the triumphant entry, we call it, and the Pharisees are trying to get him to hush up his disciples who were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, what did Jesus say? If they were to quit saying this, even the rocks would cry out. The point is, is that God has said, somebody will rejoice when the king comes. From Malachi, your king's coming to you lowly, riding on the foal of an ass, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Somebody's going to shout. If it's not them, it's going to be the rocks. But somebody will shout. And so notice it's that same type of idea that even inanimate objects recognize 
their maker and their creator. And so it's a warning. Um, it's, a, it's an encouragement to Israel that their God is coming with them. It's a warning to the heathen. And then finally, we have the answer to the questions raised in verse 5 and 6. It says, Tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. If we didn't have the word God back there in verse 2, this verse then defines who the His is. Those two His's that we saw in verse 2. It's the presence of the Lord. It's the presence of the God of Jacob that has caused this phenomena to occur. The mountains to move, the water to stop, the sea to divide. It's the fact that their God is coming with them into this land. And as an example of His power, verse 8, He turns the rock into standing water, the flint into a fountain of waters. Notice we have the parallelism going on again. And notice as well that we have something that took place at the beginning of the Exodus and something that took place at the end. Now, what's this referring to? I'm I'm making an assumption here you know. Maybe you don't. Moses striking the rock. And what came out of the rock? Water. Sort of important. More than just... I can strike rocks, but water doesn't come out. Okay. So Moses strikes the rock, and water pours out of it. They were thirsty. Where were they? Mara was where the bitter waters were, and they put the. They were right outside of Mount Sinai. They were in Rephidim. That was the name of the place, Rephidim. But again, it's right in the vicinity of Mount Sinai. So that took place at the beginning of the Exodus. But how many times did Moses strike the rock? How many times did this happen? There's another account at the end when they're at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 20 where the same thing happens again. The people are all upset because there's nothing to drink, and they come to Moses. And this time, Moses sort of loses his cool, and he strikes the rock. He was told to speak to the rock. He strikes the rock twice. Water comes out. But, of course, you remember it was for that infraction that he would not be allowed to go into the land of Canaan because he disobeyed God. But notice again, it's a miracle that took place at the beginning of the wilderness wandering and one that should have been at the end. Of course, it went on for another 38 years when they didn't enter into Canaan at Kadesh Barnea. But again, you have the idea that it wasn't just didn't happen once, it happened twice, one at the beginning, one at the end. Um, it is a remarkable thing if that you can hit rock and bring forth water. In John 7, just to sort of bring this to a head, in John chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And we are told that on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, something happened. Now, from extra-biblical sources, we learn from the Jews what went on this last day. The Feast of Tabernacles actually lasted seven days, and then it had a final eighth day that they called the great day of the feast. The rabbis referred to this time. Now, number one, the Feast of Tabernacles was like a national cookout, campout, um, 
a time of rejoicing. Remember, some of their feast days, like the Day of Atonement, is a time of mourning and repentance and affliction. But other times, especially Passover and Sukkot, it's called, booths, tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles, it is a time of week-long celebration because the crops have been gathered, the harvest is over, they are basking in the goodness of their God for them. And the rabbi said, you have never, ever seen rejoicing if you have not seen the rejoicing of the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles. The last day, they, the priest would march down to the pool of Siloam. And trust me, it's down to the pool of Siloam. That was the pool that was formed when Hezekiah cut the tunnel from the Gihon Spring underneath the old city of David and came out at the pool of Siloam. It's the very pool, pool where Jesus is going to heal the man born blind, sends him to be to wash the spittle off. So it's to that pool, and that pool is way down at the edge of the, the Hinnon Valley. Um, I mean, the temple is sitting up here on top of the hill. That pool is down at the very bottom, just inside the wall at the south border of Jerusalem. And so the priests with these huge vessels would march down with the people that have come for the feast, a hundred thousand of them singing out of the Psalms. With joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. Can you imagine a hundred thousand people singing this psalm, marching with the priest down the hill to the Pool of Siloam, and the priest would fill these huge vessels, and then they would carry them back up the hill, back into the temple, and the people would flock, would throng into the temple courtyard to witness the priest take these huge vessels of water and pour them over the altar. And can you imagine watching this? You're, you're just a spectator in a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. And they're pouring these vessels of water on top of the altar and water's just running everywhere. What they're doing is recapitulating this miracle. The striking of the rock and water flowing out. Notice that the rock, in this case, is the altar. And water, of course this is artificial, it's not a miracle this time, but they are recapitulating. They are repicturing what happened in the wilderness. And it is at that instant that John 7 tells us that Jesus stood and cried aloud, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That's a tremendous statement that what Jesus is saying, if you look at these great miracles, bread from heaven, Guess who's that bread? John 6. I'm the bread of life. The light. The Shekinah glory that followed them. Who's the light? I'm the light of the world. And now we see in John 7, you're recapitulating this miracle in the wilderness of water coming from the rock. The smitten rock. I am that rock. And from me 
will real water, true water, living water flow. And of course, that was the discussion, wasn't it, with the woman at Samaria at the, at the well. So there is the tie-in for us that all of these wonderful things, and they rejoiced over the type, over the shadow. We rejoice over the reality as it has come to pass in Jesus Christ. All right, any um, comments or observations? Stunned silence? (laughs) I keep coming back to the fact they could get happy over the types. And uh, we have a hard time getting worked up over the reality. That's something that's telling, isn't it? Yes, Charles? Absolutely. There are, there are some phenomena in the world that we talk about the storm, the thunderstorm in Job's case. And it, it takes a pretty jaded person to be standing in the presence of a thunderstorm, to be caught outside in the middle of that and not be overwhelmed with just the power and majesty of it. I mean, you've got to be... You've got to be a real nerd to not be moved, right? Uh, a tornado. I remember Jeff Ash talking about some 12, 13 years ago, a tornado hit Pontotoc, a black lady. He, they had the insurance on her house, and, uh, and he was talking to her about the storm, and she was a Christian lady and said, uh, how could you not worship a god? with this kind of power. You know, everybody else blaming it on this, that, and the other. She's saying, no. Here's a demonstration of the awesome power. I'm hoping to get a glimpse of something like that. You may have seen that Popo, Popo Cotapel, the Mexicans call it Popo, is erupting uh, about 30 miles south of Mexico City. And uh, if we get a good day, we'll get a good look at that volcano. Uh, I was talking to somebody about that earlier this morning. Uh, and, uh, see, you know, we just don't get too many opportunities to see volcanoes erupting. But it's uh, it's sort of spewing out fire and ash right now. Hope it doesn't do anything more than that. But i just like to see it. Just the awesome power of God Almighty. And you're right. It's, it's like the mountains themselves are moved. It's like nature is moving aside. The water's dividing as God. It's not Israel per se. It's Israel's God that's trembling. They're to tremble in the presence of Israel's God. Good point. It's like, move aside. Get out of the way. God's coming. Well, it's, of course, a warning to, especially the pagan, the idolaters that make a god out of material stuff. So, yeah, it's certainly a, 
But it's just a an, an interesting way of putting God is coming to town, get out of the way. And the rivers divide, the mountains shake as God comes into the land. Anything else? The edge of it is, um, the they have just recently discovered, uh, right where you come out of the, the tunnel of Hezekiah, there is a pool, a short little pool. And for years they thought that was Pool of Siloam. Turns out the real Pool of Siloam is about 100 yards further. That's just a channel leading to it. And what they've unearthed is the steps down to the pool. And those steps are now visible along one side. But the pool area itself, and presumably these steps went all the way around it, it's like a huge, huge pool with these stone steps going down into it, uh, that is covered up with about 25 feet of dirt, and it belongs to somebody. So until they're trying to negotiate to get control of it, to be able to excavate it, and to the present time, the only part that's been excavated is just one side. But you get a pretty good picture of what this thing would have looked like in its heyday. It's a big pool. Yes. Not, um, I mean, they were subjugated from time to time by enemies. Their army would be defeated, the temple would be looted, things of that nature, but never deported, physically moved out of their land, like in the case of the Babylonian captivity. Of course, in Egypt, they never had been in the land in the first place. So in this case, they're physically coming into the actual land itself. So no, nothing quite like those two things. And that's why those two things are so prominent, especially in the writings of the prophets. I think it's Jeremiah who says, God says through him, you used to refer to me as the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now you refer to me as the God who brought you out of Babylon. That this will be a work on the scale of what he originally did, bringing them out of Egypt. In some ways, the the return from Babylon is more appropriate as a type of salvation. Um, Now, clearly, the Exodus is a type of salvation. The idea of God redeeming them, the Passover lamb, things slain, so forth. But uh, they were in Egypt. Why? They ran out of food went there. It's clearly God's will for them to go to Egypt. But why were they in Babylon? Sin. And so in some ways the Babylonian captivity is more appropriate to illustrating us and our predicament. Uh, we were, the last chapter we looked at in Isaiah uh, 51 was God saying, where's the divorce papers? Where's your divorce? Where did, I'm your husband. Show me your divorce papers where I put you away. And, of course, they can't produce them. Uh, Where's the money I got from selling you as a slave? Of course, you didn't get any money. And he goes on to say, it's your own sins and you've sold yourself. That's an interesting way of looking at it. You, You did this. That's why you're in bondage. That's why you're in Babylon. This was not my... Clearly, it was his doing in the overall sense, but it wasn't his 
culpability, blamability. They're to be blamed. They're the ones that did this, and they did it to themselves. So that's why those two great incidences in the history of Israel are so important because they form the illustrations of how then we're saved. Oh, well, let's go to prayer. Um, this great God hears prayers. In that, He stoops. That's what we learned last week. He stoops to look down at the heavens. Now, that's pretty high when you've got to stoop to look down at heaven. We get a crick in our neck looking up at heaven. He uh, stoops to look down. So the idea is he is a whole lot higher than us, and yet he condescends to hear our cries.